house. No, the right no, house. I didn't get We want to talk to Marilyn Hack. I'm from Canada Water. Yes. Oh, let me guess. Through the internet? Yes. Hmm. You've got mail. Yes. Those are very powerful words. Yes. Hello and welcome to the This Had Oscar Buzz podcast, the only podcast that's mailbag, mail nasty. Every week on this at Oscar Buzz, we'll be talking about a different movie that once upon a time had lofty Academy Award aspirations, but for some reason or another, it all went wrong. The Oscar hopes died, and we're here to perform the autopsy, except this week, it's our mailbag episode. So we'll be pulling, uh, what, what is like a, what's the small scale autopsy? You know, it's not, it's focused, it's broad. We will, uh, we'll be, uh, um, I'm still back on the road where like wondering how, many contexts could you find a way to do the jack twist jack nasty joke because i feel like for you the limit does not exist i oh, really no, feel no, like no 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 i really feel like you could you could shoehorn that one into anything i mean like i almost said can you imagine if twitter existed during brokeback mountain don't want that because i don't want the people no. pulling like oh the know, takes oh not yeah the takes. about how yeah. the movie is actually morally corrupt whatever right um straight washing like yeah because i was gonna say all of the jack twist jack nasty jokes that could potentially come out of that but like i still feel like they're there but never in an omnipresent way that like everybody's making those jokes but it's it's better this way it's it's more one a week and it will destroy you and yeah, real ones. Good. Real ones will make a uh, will make a good Jack Twist, Jack Nasty joke, and honestly, that's good enough for me. I myself did not make a good Jack Twist, Jack Nasty joke. Um, but guys, I'm your host, uh, Chris File. I'm here as always with my mailman, Joe Reed. I like that emphasis on mailman, as if there I was like once a mail boy, and now I am. Mm-hmm. I have gone through my mail. Uh, rituals and now i am a mailman or it's the jackie harry uh the jackie harry uh an <laughs> old man a young man a mailman something you would like deliver to your house a mailman yeah yeah, yeah right, exactly right right, right. Exactly. Uh, so we're here to do a mailbag uh we yeah, have we gotten first of all we do this as a special episode to say thank you to our listeners our wonderful yes. listeners who are wide various and uh very very appreciated by us i think this is because i handle all of the like incoming mailbag questions for us yes yes i think this is the most questions we've ever had that makes sense it our, was a our, our, lot our listenership is only growing which is you know very good and we we love and, that and we, love we to see appreciate that. it so much guys we love you yeah, um we do and thank you so much for all of your questions, your thoughtful questions. Once again, I, I, not just that this was, I think, the most we've ever had, but like way more than we could ever get to in this episode. So we apologize if your question is not in there. It does not mean we do not appreciate you. Um, but we have some fun stuff to talk about today. We do feel like if we haven't chosen your question, uh, you have room for improvement. And really, in the next year, we'd like you to concentrate on that. 
<laughs> no, I'm kidding. No, I'm kidding. What an awful thing to say. I'm sorry I brought the language of uh, annual work evaluations into this podcast. The subtext of this thing. episode is HR is not your friend. The subtext of this episode is have a seat. We have to talk. Yeah, no. No, that is not the, that's not the subtext of this. Ugh. We printed out your emails. Would you like to talk to us about... <laughs> You seem to spend an inordinate amount of time on Oscar prediction websites? What's going on here? (laughs) Yeah. Well. Awards daily? What? Yeah. Oh. Flashback into my my youth. (laughs) Before it was, you know. Apple trailers? What? (laughs) What are you doing? Yeah. That was me. All right. Uh, Let's not waste a ton of time because we do have, as you mentioned, a ton of questions. We do. We do Let's want get to into jump right in. some quick table setting. These are questions that we get uh, pretty much every mailbag that like we we like to talk about because um, you know we get. I think they come from more new listeners who maybe haven't gone back to like previous times we've talked about some of this. Um, but like it's good. It's good to get it out there and like it. It'll start us fresh on the incoming new year for the rest of the podcast. Yeah. Uh, you know, one question we didn't get this time that we usually do is where does the Salma Hayek and from Canada water come from? Once again, I go was, back to our Ask the Dust episode. I was all right. Let's let's wait on that, Chris, because I do feel like I'm going to bring that up organically in a different question. So As can, you are prone to do in any conversation about this any. Is true wide-ranging topic yes so uh yeah stay tuned okay uh pulling this one from nathan unless i'm missing something you two have never chosen a film from before your periods of oscar awareness or at least your lifetimes have you discussed or considered choosing older films that fit the profile of your show um the oldest episode we've done is as old as i am uh it was nuts nuts that was a fun episode i enjoyed doing our episode on nuts yeah 1987, right? Yes, 1987, the year I was born. It's hard because that period we're talking about is when, like, Oscar predictions and, you know, the Oscar ethos really kind of evolved. Because before basically that time, you know, the... I guess the dirty secret under our breath before Harvey Weinstein and Miramax really yeah. changed the face of the race. Yeah. Um, in terms of what Oscar campaigning was, it really was a studio effort kind of thing. Um, and, and you like, had to be really, really inside the business to sort of know what was right. going on. There were, of course, reporters and there were, you know, uh, writers at the trades and, and variety and the Hollywood reporter and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a much more organic thing that would come from even, like, the reactions to the films, you know, the kind of thing that maybe a lot of us want today, right. where there's less campaigning and it's truly, you know, how we as a movie-going culture respond to movies. Um, whereas, like, independent cinema would break through here and then, but there would also be a lot of stars attached you know where it's like jane fonda goes and makes a movie outside of the studio system and you know it gets attention but it's also a quality movie um and like something even like easy rider which would change the industry really could get attention you know being kind of a more outsider movie it's just a more organic thing but then as like 
Oscar campaigning comes into it. That's how like predicting and you know. Yeah, we're we're chronicling a time that is very much necessary to include the ecosystem of the internet here and right. the, the websites and and social media eventually and things like that. And while it's fun to talk about movies like Nuts or like The Bonfire of the Vanities, I think to get really dig into movies that had Oscar buzz and got no Oscar nominations from, you know, the 80s and, and earlier, I think the other thing that we should probably mention is that just like, we do this podcast and we love this podcast and we dedicate a lot of ourselves to this podcast, but it's not our main job. Like, right. we have main jobs. And I think if we were, if this was our job, right? If we were Karina Long, we made money doing, off of this podcast, doing, doing, you must remember this or something. And, and had the time and resources to really research, because that's what you would really need to do is you would really need to like deeply research anything that was beyond, like beyond the period of our mm-hmm. own experience, right? Where, where's this? I can wing it and I can be like, hey, I remember when the Amelia trailer came out and let me tell you. You know what I mean? Right. But like, the part of the reason that like we can research what we do is because most of this stuff we have not let it leave our brain. We right. can't let our it go. Our poor diseased so, like, brains need to purge. If yeah. we have to do some research, we know the avenues to go down for it. But also it's just like if you get further out of the calendar that we've talked about before, it's like you're really talking about movies that were failures in other ways, and it's yeah. like, at most, its lack of Oscar nominations would be a footnote in why yeah. that movie, you know, well, didn't register. And we'd really need to get into things like, you know, doing, like, you know, the old LexisNexis search or whatever of, like, old <laughs> trade paper articles and 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 books. And again, like... Granted, like, we, of course, would love to do that, but... Of course! If that was my job, are you kidding me? I'd be in my glory. Um, but it's also... And I mean, not to make light of it, because, like, it's hard work. Like, as I, I, as I meant, like, Karina Longworth is the best in the biz for a reason. It's because she is an incredibly dedicated researcher into whatever subjects she is delving into. But also, she can dedicate six months of her of her life to that, because that is her job, you know? Mm-hmm. So, um, not to be, like, you know making excuses for ourselves but yeah we just we have we have to make a living y'all well i mean especially in the past like two years of my life my day job like sucks more and more of my mental capacities so like yeah uh next any any wealthy benefactor out there who wants to sugar daddy this podcast and (laughs) uh and finance us some eccentric billionaire who really loves the Oscars. Like, or any network that wants to, uh, you know, adopt us so that we are no longer an independent podcast. Absolutely. Um, pay us. Um, <laughs> anyway. Anyway. Uh, from Elliot, what are some bold predictions for the This Had Oscar Buzz class of 2021? So we we like to, A, stay optimistic about all uh, yes. movies and such. We also um, are two people who are not prone to having egg on our face about uh, wrong predictions. <laughs> However, We're also at a stage of the Oscar year right now where a lot of things are a possibility. So it really is difficult to We're going to have some say. questions that are going to get into yeah. the possibility of this race. I do feel like... More than ever, there are 
major races that are completely in flux that it could be like one of a billion different lineups and like i what's frustrating to me and i don't want to get into this because we can get into it with some of the other questions that we have is it seems like that is annoying people and that drives me crazy because i'm like no this is what everybody says that they want and like nobody seems to want it and that That's what is, like, fun about this. That's what you should not take too seriously about this. And, you know. Also, the Oscars are in late March. Like, this race is going to narrow, and it's going to get predictable eventually. So enjoy the part of the year where it's not predictable. This is my favorite time of the year where everything is kind of a possibility. I will say, though, to answer the question, I think a movie like Don't Look Up, is to me the one of those movies with like the biggest Ugh. variance, right? Where like you could see a world where Academy members respond to its, you know, intentions and its message. And this is a movie that I have not seen yet, and you have. So like we're okay. on two different levels of experience here. But I could still see a version of the Academy that hands this one to five nominations. Or I could I see, see a version of history entirely. where it gets ten and I see a version that it gets zero. Right, exactly. Um, I, I think see after a version the... where it's just for this movie, Academy Award nominee Ariana Grande, Best Original oh, Song, and then God. nothing else. Spare me. Um, but I think after this initial round of reviews, I'm maybe not seeing a world where ten nominations is possible. But like, uh, you know, a handful is still there. Maybe one of those like you could have said Vice the same about the turnout. reviews for Vice. But Vice ended up with how many nominations though? Ooh, it's probably more than seven? I'm remembering, actually. God, yeah, it's more than I'm remembering. Okay, yeah, well, fair. I it feel like Vice is its upper level. All the top right categories, now. it did really well. Yeah, the other ones that I'm thinking of is while I think it probably is going to get a foreign language film nomination, there is a world in which Titan does not get any nominations, and because we all sort of started thinking it would. Now all of a sudden we can do an episode on Titan, which would be amazing, which would be so much fun to do. My mindset for class of 2021, it's going to be really interesting to see what we talk about that episode slash going to be a nightmare to prepare for, unless things really do narrow down because like for everything that I'm like, Oh, this definitely there's a thing of like, well, Dear Evan Hansen could get an original song nomination or, you <laughs> right. know, right. things like that. Right. Totally. The other episode that I'm not exactly looking forward to doing, but we will probably end up doing is unless, you know, voters come around and I kind of hope they do, at least in certain categories, is we'll probably end up be doing it in the Heights episode. And it will just be two hours of me angrily It could be ranting. an original song nominee. I mean, I hope it gets something. Um but if it doesn't, and it really feels like it's the afterthought of afterthoughts, which is just... Yeah, I don't think Warner Brothers is doing anything for it. No, it's not. And it's just going to be me being so angry that, A, that this movie flopped at the box office, and and whatever. I can only get so angry at people because, like, it was a pandemic and whatever. I'm not going to tell you to go out of the house if you don't want to. Um, but also the fact that, like, because it did not it was not a financial success then all of a sudden everybody totally forgot about the fact that they liked it you know and all of a sudden it was just like well now it's just shit and it's it was uh, it makes me mad it was it makes a me mad. poorly promoted movie like the trailers for that movie did not really sell you on what the plot of it was and like the star of the movie even though like it 
you know, the trailer showed the cast of it, but like audiences were left with being like the star of this movie is the musical Hamilton. Like, yeah, no, it's right. They really did try to do that, like heavily on the switcheroo of like, you like Hamilton, right? Go see him in the Heights. Right. And no, I think you're right. But also it's not like it had stars to advertise on. So I, I understand at some point I just want movie audiences Whatever. Again, I can't complain about people not going to see this movie in a pandemic, but I also can be like, I don't know. At least they should have watched it a ton on fucking HBO Max or something, even though I hate yeah, that it was also I on HBO Max. Yeah, I thought the data that came out about it was that it wasn't super highly watched on HBO Max. Yeah. Either. And part of me is just like, just have a fucking sense of adventure for once in your life, you morons. I don't know. <laughs> that will that will be our episode on In the Heights. It's just my, That will be my attitude throughout it. So it, like, it will be you at your angriest. Um, yes. It might be me at my snobbiest. Because um, <laughs> I'm like, I enjoyed the movie. It is really poorly shot. Um, okay. All right. We're going to fight that. Okay. Yeah, we'll there fight on go. that episode. You guys can look forward to us uh, ending our friendship. Um, yeah. Or just generally fighting. I like our episodes where we fight sometimes. I don't. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> Uh, anyway, I didn't pull a specific question about this, but we did get a lot of questions about when we would start a Patreon. Yeah. We want to, you guys, and we do really appreciate the Does anybody want to volunteer to be our accountant for no fee? Because then we'll start a Patreon. Okay? <laughs> that day. Again, if, you know, this was our jobs, it would be very different. Like, I, for me personally, I kind of can't take on one more thing and like we also understand about us when we want to do something we want to do it as well as we can so like yes we would feel the extra responsibility in doing a patreon and like doing it well for you guys and you know making it something you would want to have yes uh so we'll see we'll see we want to it's we have ideas in our long-term plans forever we definitely have ideas i certainly would love money life has gotten in the way Life has gotten in the way, and again, it the logistical annoyances of having to deal with making freelance income fucking suck. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. Hopefully soon. Hopefully one day. Uh, Joe, let's get into some uh, general questions. Are you ready? Are you cracking your knuckles? Uh, yes, metaphorically. I don't want to literally crack my knuckles because I have enough... Uh, aches and pains in my life as a 40-something person now. You're not a person who, when you crack them, it takes the aches. Arthritis is probably knocking down the road, and I don't want to give it any quicker of an arrival, so. All right. All right, starting us off with questions from Brayden. Brayden asks, why is Critics' Choice seen as such a large precursor award? I've always looked at as a Looked at it as an awards show with a very wide-ranging list of categories, and I feel like the awards body gets more caught up on trying to guess who will win. Is this just a remnant of the past, or is it a genuine precursor? One thing, this is, uh, we've talked about this about the Globes, but you do kind of also have to remember it about Critics' Choice, too, in less toxic terms, obviously. But the awards body and the awards they give out are not the same thing like we don't like the hollywood foreign press association we have fun watching the golden globes which is like yes. more credit to dick clark productions than it is to that body the thing yeah. about critics choice is they've made i think these expansion of categories and stuff have been production 
choices that are being made about the award show and the yeah, network they that want, they've been on. Yeah, yes. They want famous people on TV so that they, people watch. They also want to pander to a TV audience and they want to build a TV audience. So they want to do the thing that we're always kind of mocking the Oscars for trying to inch into, which is loading up with populist categories that just seem kind of lame like best actor mm-hmm. in an action movie best actress in an action movie and, and how like seriously that. should we take something like that when they're giving out well and a then, million then, yeah acting prizes right and then at the same time they will try to tout this is the thing that most annoys me about the critics choice is that they will try to tout their oscar predictive abilities i wish i could remember i certainly can't find the clip online but one of the years one of the earlier years that it was televised um, they had an actor giving banter, scripted banter, before giving out an award. And a lot of the banter was just like, in the past X years, the winner of the Critics' Choice Award went on to win the Oscar eight out of ten times, or whatever like that. And then the actor who was reading the copy sort of stops himself for a second and goes, man, this is a really braggy award show. And I'm just like, yes, thank you. Because I mean, like, I agree with that. I question where that's coming from. Is it coming from the producer of the award show and their writing team, or is it coming from the awards body? And I, Well, it also exists know, in their press releases when they will release the nominees every fair. year. So like, that's where it's coming from some sort of high up edict because that's what they want to be known for they've been very well and when they do thirsty. things like hedging their bets on who might win like they give this broad the year they gave that like broad actor of the year award to jessica chastain but they didn't give her like best actress or supporting actress i forget what year it was that she was in the run they expanded court. their acting categories very early on to six nominees because they wanted to be able like to say Right. And so now, and it's just like they seem very overly concerned with being an Oscar predictor, which is funny because, again, we talk about how we would always kind of slight the Golden Globes for why do we see the Golden Globes as an Oscar predictor? There is zero overlap between their like 35 weird and they're a journalists. niche group of and, 100 and people compared right. to like what is now almost 10,000 or over 10,000 Academy members. Right. There's no overlap between the Hollywood Foreign Press and the Academy. There's also no overlap between the Broadcast Film Critics Association and the Academy. So like there's really no actual reason why we should see those as predictive more so than say the Screen Actors Guild, which is predictive for a reason. But also, I, I mean, the critics' but, choice have always annoyed me. But again, now they have a television show. They are one of a few shows that are kind of poised to take that mantle. You've got the SAG mm-hmm. Awards. You've got the Critics' Choice. And now the Independent Spirit Awards are kind of throwing their hat in the ring, although they are more naturally limited by their by the scope of what they are, right? Yeah. They're only for They're the ones that I'm most worried about what's going to become of that award show. Though well, I do think Critics' Choice is more poised to be, like, the prime time... Uh, it's been on, like, the CW before, but, like, people haven't... If, if you put it on, like, uh, ABC, will more people watch it? Probably. Well, this um, year it's going to be on the CW and TBS, I want to say. It's, like, simulcasting. I think they've done that before. Um, when we talk I, about... Go ahead. No, you go ahead. When we talk about the awards body, though, one of the things that I think gets overlooked in why Critics' Choice should be considered more and why I think at least their wins are not necessarily trying to predict the Oscars, they are among these voting bodies. In terms of size, they are closest to the Academy. There's, There's several thousand members, right? And when 
that many number of people are voting. It's not the same thing as when 100 people are voting. And it's not the same thing when it's just SAG, who's just voting actors on actors, basically. Um, And, like, the way that consensus builds with that large of a group, like, maybe this makes me sound like some type of math nerd or something. No, you're right. It's worth, you know, paying attention to. With larger numbers, you end up coming to a more sort of median median consensus. And that is how the Oscars end up with their people always talk about like how could this person beat out such and such who was giving a more like objectively daring performance and it's like well well that's how like that's how large number mathematics work actually mm-hmm. like that's sort of you get a big enough group and when you're dealing with a large enough group and broad the more people that you're putting in that group the yeah. broader the taste is going to be and the more exactly. mainstream the taste is going to be and and I, I hesitate to use a term like lowest common denominator because that does sound pejorative but it's math Mathematically, that's sort of what you're going to, is you're going to end up sort of regressing to, and again, regressing sounds pejorative, but like to, to a mean, to a median sort of uh, option. It's, it's the thing that the most people can agree on is good, is not great, maybe, is not terrible, but is good. And, and that's sort of what you have. And to me, I do think there is, when you're talking about the Oscars especially, I do think there is value to that because it is... It's it's a, a a historical sort of like landmark, right? It is mm-hmm. a where we were at the time. And so I don't disagree with you with that about the critics' choice. I do feel like I would like them to be just a little more daring. I think all awards bodies besides the Oscars should have some sort of element of juried nomination processes just because – the canvas that you are working with is so broad. There are so many movies these days. Certainly in the Emmys, there are so many television shows that it's impossible to ask a, a voting body that large to assess all of those things. So mm-hmm. I think if the, I think the critics choice could become instantly a lot more interesting and I'd have a lot more respect for them if they went more towards Something like that. The Screen Actors Guild does that. They have a they have a nominating committee, and I think that's probably a big reason why sometimes we get some like really weird and interesting SAG nominees. And it's not always something we love, but I would much rather have an awards body that gives me great choices and terrible choices, along with the more consensus stuff, rather than like all consensus, which is what the critics' choice is to me. I'm never surprised by a SAG nomination or by a critics' choice nomination in film. Um, even in the, their television awards are a whole other thing. And like, that's a can of worms. We don't have time for me to open. But <laughs> their film awards, I'm always just like, oh, right. Those are like the top six Oscar contenders. Like, that's what they were going to nominate. Okay. And sure. sometimes they do nominate things like, endowed for compliance that like you know makes sense that it would be consensus for this body that will never really have a shot at being oscar nominated but even those to me i look at that you know a decade later or whatever about endowed and i'm like oh right that's the thing that everybody was talking about as a dark horse oscar contender at that very moment Mm -hmm. you know what i mean and people were writing sort of like but what about endowed and Again, it just feels like you are writing a predictions column rather than casting an awards ballot. 
But I've said my piece about the Critics' Choice. We should have maybe caveated this question with we're recording this the day before this year's Critics' Choice nomination. So all of the anything could happen tomorrow that make us sound uh stupid but yeah yeah generally speaking about this awards body the next question i wanted to throw in there because we do get a lot of people always uh wanting us to do something that got like a few nominations or two but right. i also love the chaos of this question uh-huh. uh from Steven, Steven asks, since you'll never be able to do an episode on Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close, could you riff on it for a few minutes and give your thoughts? As one of the most divisive additions to the Best Picture races in recent years, after opening up the race to more than five films, it has always lingered for me since I didn't hate it. Uh, you don't hate that movie, Steven. Uh, we respect your opinion on it. I wouldn't call that movie divisive. I would call it reviled. <laughs> um, yeah. I also didn't hate it, though, I will say. Um, yeah, there's people that didn't hate it, but, like, right. I don't know no, if there's people that, I feel really like that's the upper echelon. For yeah, it. didn't hate it feels like the upper echelon of that. I also don't really think about it very much or remember it, but I remember my reaction to it when I finally saw it was, oh, I don't hate this like everybody seems to hate it. And I think a lot of people had come in hating the book, and and there was a lot of sort of momentum towards kind of kicking at this movie which is not to say that people weren't genuine in their negative reactions to it because i believe i believe you they were um i feel like we see less and less of the type of extremely loud and incredibly closes in oscar recent oscar races because like one thing about that movie is it came in extremely late and like one of those things where it was like, is this movie even going to be ready in time? Yes. And I think what they did is they showed it to all the right people who were going to like it in terms of the Academy, like incredibly last minute. Um, I love that you've used the words extremely and incredibly in describing this movie's uh, fuck off. situations. No, I'm I'm just saying it's, it's... my vocab is narrow and small. <laughs> Uh, extremely narrow and incredibly small. <laughs> Fuck off. Um, one, the thing that I love to remember extremely loud and incredibly close for is that it was the most trolling I think we have. I was going to bring this up. I wanted on to talk nomination about morning. Yeah. All right. I'll, you, you do it because I was going to do it, but you do it. Yeah. Uh, fully ready to talk about this. This is like one of my favorite uh, nomination morning things because it was fully everyone screaming what and throwing their arms in the air because this best picture nomination presented, which was read by none other than Jennifer Lawrence. It was incredibly chaotic in that the screen, we didn't know what between six and ten nominees there would be, right? A lot of people have done them, did the math and was like, mathematically, it's most likely that it will be eight or nine for the way that the voting happens. Whatever. So when they start reading off the nominees, the way that the placement of the, like, tiles of the titles on the screen appear, it looks like it's going to be eight nominees. But when they start reading the eight nominees, they are, like, in chaotic order. Non-alphabetical. The first Best Picture nominee that they announce is War Horse. (laughs) And then where do they go from War Horse? They go to the artist. So it's not even like they're going in reverse order. It's all in random order. And it looks like it's going to be eight nominees. The order was 
Warhorse, The Artist, Moneyball, The Descendants, The Tree of Life, Midnight in Paris, The Help, and Hugo. And you think that's going to be it. And then Jennifer Lawrence says, and extremely loud and incredibly close. And that tile shows up in the middle. (laughs) And like, that's the one that you hear people screaming in the background for. But I think you also heard a collective scream around the globe of people and Oscar obsessives being like, this terrible movie is the one that they clearly trolled us with. Also made people who have to do like reporting on this incredibly chaotic by doing it out of alphabetical order. <laughs> um, yeah, it is. I'll put the I'll put the video of it on our Tumblr page for this episode. It's upsettingly disorganized. <laughs> yeah, it was. I had a big laugh because I did enjoy that everybody who was so mad at that movie had to be like extra mad that morning. I mean, it really felt like it was a troll of people who do reporting on this and like they knew what they had on their hands with this nomination and like the people that would be outraged and they put it and if it wasn't intentional, then it's very odd that they did it this way. Because it felt like it created, for people who are obsessive and watching the nominations announcement, like, it was just primed to make the movie go over even worse. Yeah. I mean, you've said everything I was going to say, so yes, yes, that's exactly what happened. Any other notes on Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close? Not really. Again, I mean, that was was sort of the one thing I was going to say about it was the sort of spatial relations trolling of that moment, but uh, you got it. So It was the first Stephen Daldry movie that he didn't get nominated for Best Director, right? Because he was nominated for the previous three. He was nominated in Director Only for Billy Elliot. He was nominated for The Hours in Both. He was nominated for The Reader in Both. In Both, yeah. Yeah, yes. But it still continued his streak of one or the other. Like, the fact that it wasn't until he made that movie with uh, Martin Sheen that nobody saw that uh, that uh, broke that streak, which is interesting. Martin Sheen? Yeah, what, what was that called? Was that? Nobody saw it. Uh, what was it called? Um, hold on. Eh. He also did the pandemic movie with James McAvoy that nobody saw this year. God. I have no idea what even that is. I have no. It idea was like about, about living with, I think, a spouse uh, that you're getting divorced with during the oh, pandemic. And I was like, absolutely not. Right together. Uh, I am not watching the... pandemic movies about the pandemic. No. Right. Not doing with it. Sharon Horgan, Sorry. James McAvoy, and Sharon Horgan, two incredibly uh, likable and charming and charismatic people. But yeah, um, what was that movie called? It was called Trash. Crash. Trash. Crash. Trash. Oh my god. <laughs> With Rooney Mara. Right. <laughs> Rooney Mara. That and movie Martin really Sheen. didn't get much of a release. No, too. not at all. That's what I mean. Like that that's that was the thing that broke the streak because like he made a movie that nobody saw. Yeah. Yes. Moving right along from Olivia, your collective enthusiasm for Rosamund Pike's threatening bank commercial, as well as recent discussions about Kate Winslet's mid-aughts Amex ads, got me thinking, what are some of your favorite and or most iconic celebrity appearances? All right, Sometime, I'm going to say it. Yeah. I'm going to say it because I know you're going to say it, too, and I'm going to get in on this one. Uh, the The ideal for this is the Lauren Bacall for High Point Coffee. Like, this I mean. is... This is the number one. One rehearsal, four actors, and 20 coffee cups. 
Around here, we don't like coffee. We love it. I look forward to my sixth cup as much as my first one. That's because my coffee's high point decaffeinated. I don't need caffeine. I'm active enough, thank you. But that's just one reason this coffee lover chooses high point. Oh, that aroma's wonderful. Just look at this deep, rich color. But you know what really matters to coffee lovers? This. Mmm. Deep and rich. Flavor this good has to be deep brewed into a coffee. Try High Point, the coffee lovers decaffeinated. The diction, the enunciation, the intense commitment to selling the idea that you are a nut for uh, High Point coffee and its uh, decaffeinated charm um, really is, it's, it's amazing, especially because you can, it's really fun to like surprise people with it, especially people who, you know, are like younger, but like fancy themselves, like estates or whatever. And it's just like, I'm into old movies and I know Lauren McCall. And I'm like, yes, but do you know her high point, uh, uh, coffee commercials? It also, uh, has a more recent, we must have talked about it when we did our crazy, stupid love episode, because there's the moment in crazy, stupid love where they're yes, sort of montaging through Emma Stone and Ryan Gosling's kind of night of having sex and also falling for each other. They don't where have sex. Oh, right. They don't have sex. They should have sex because, again, look at them. Um, Emotionally, they have sex. Right. But there's one of the things that they sort of montage through with no explanation is Emma Stone doing a impersonation of Lauren Bacall doing the high point. Uh, it's decaffeinated uh, uh, ads, and it's really wonderful. So Sometimes the most obvious answer is the right one. I think that's right. I also have on my long list, uh, it's sort of in that same genre, the old Orson Welles ads that he would do when he needed to pick up some scare change for like Paul Masson Chablis or whatever, or like, uh, or, uh, frozen vegetables or whatever, uh, parodied wonderfully on the critic. And I think one more sort of kind of, uh, sincere is, I've always liked the Charlize Theron Dior ads, especially the earliest Hot. ones. Um, the one where she's sort of strutting on a runway to that uh, gossip song. I was just like, yeah, that's fucking hot. Like, I love that. <laughs> um, but I don't know. What are yours? Uh, I have one more example, but one note I want to say before I move on to that example. I don't want to get into conversations of what is and isn't camp, but I don't understand why we don't use the High Point Coffee ad as an example of what is camp. Yeah. My other example, also an obvious one, but a right one, is Jamie Lee Curtis for Activia. How many celebrities do we get <laughs> essentially secondhand talking about poop? Yeah, like, that's true. Not that's to be scatological, point. but like it, I, Jamie Lee Curtis talking about being regular, like all we need. You're not wrong about camp, but I will also just say that... Um, I never thought that I would be at 40 years old so incredibly deathly afraid of anything as I am to advance an opinion about camp on Twitter because it is a jungle out there, y'all. Like, trying to define... There's like three people I will let talk about camp and be like, oh, listen to this person. you're generous. I will... Br I, I'm at zero now. I don't want to hear a <laughs> single person try to tell me what camp is or what isn't camp. I don't give a fuck. Don't like, blame don't blame the people writing about what is camp. Blame the editors that are still assigning out those jobs. Um, no, I'll no blame one wants to read that anymore. Um, yeah. From Octavius, if you haven't already, please do a dive into the 46th annual Sadner Awards since they were finally announced. We haven't talked about this, but we, we, we amped this up on our Lucy in the Sky episode. The Saturn Awards, the most, like, 
cursed awards delayed by the pandemic because it was like two years but they like announced their nominees in march of 2021 didn't give them out until halloween of this year so you have movies like lucy in the sky Mm -hmm. still nominated for things um extra hilarious because it's like why is lucy in the sky a character drama nominated against Gemini Man and right. Star Wars. Right. Um, the unfortunate thing is their winners, while are just like a host of remember this movie you forgot about, like the live action Mulan film. Right. right. But it's also they're boring. Their winners are boring, and they're not as fun to talk about. Like it's Star oh, Wars winning a bunch of things. I'll it's, give you my best shot because honestly. And again, it mostly falls into the realm of how is this considered X genre. But like best fantasy film went to, and I'm going to make you wait for it because you'll never guess in a million years. I have it up in front of me. No, I'm talking to our listeners at this point. Uh, Best fantasy film went to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which I guess on one level is true if you imagine it as Quentin Tarantino's fantasy for how he would have scripted the Manson family murders. But, like, that is not a fantasy film when we're talking about genre. Like, what the fuck are you talking about? J.R.R. Tolkien is rolling in his grave right now. What the fuck? It's so stupid. Um, Things like Rise of Skywalker winning Best Science Fiction Film, I don't agree with the choice. I don't agree that it's a yeah, better what, science fiction film terrible. than Ad Astra or Tenet, two genuinely really good movies, but like whatever, at least it fits the genre. Same thing with Joker winning best comic to motion picture release, which whatever. But like I'm glad that the Invisible Man won something. And and while I probably would have picked Midsommar for best horror release, I'm glad it wasn't Freaky, which is the most overrated horror movie of the last two years. Yeah, I'm um, not seeing that. I don't do Vitz Vaughn. Yeah, you're not wrong to have that uh, to have that opinion. Um, the Saturns, if you are one of the people, and I know there are people out there who are of the onward was better than Soul uh, people, then you'd be happy that that one best animated film. Soul didn't even seem to be nominated. Soul's not nominated, which is weird. Um, but okay. I mean, when they're nominating the animated Adams Family, the first one, and not Soul, that is odd to me how are you gonna not give tenet best science fiction film and yet give john david washington in tenet best actor in a film like not saying he was bad in that movie but like there are uh, like great in that movie no i don't think he's great either like i think like there are like of the things that i love about tenet he's kind of far down the list but it's fine um glad elizabeth moss won something for the invisible man i did love her in that i'm glad Anna de Armas won something for Knives Out because I did love her in that. So, like, that's fine. Yeah, it's not as fun to talk about the long-delayed awarding of their winners as it is to talk about their winners, unfortunately. Exactly. But that is uh, an update on that. Yes. Uh, from On Twitter, the Aviator 20 asks, Do you think Kill Bill, especially Uma Thurman, could have been nominated if the film was released as one whole three-hour epic as originally intended instead of being split into two films? This is a good consider this episode our Kill Bill episode because like we got a decent number of listeners' choice bids for both Kill Bill movies because you can only vote for one movie and those are two movies released in two separate years. But also like 
why would you want us to be talking about Kill Bill? Those are like those movies have been kind of unpacked, but this is a good question about it. Um, I think no. Um, yeah, I've seen this notion kind of bandied about a, a little bit in recent years. So I'm wondering whether if this is one of those things that has kind of gained steam on on message boards and and you know discussion communities and whatnot. I mean, I think maybe she would have been better positioned to be like a sixth or seventh place, but I ultimately, still, I, I don't. I, yeah, I, no. I, I don't. I think if if your argument is that she would have been better off. As a not uh, for an awards campaign, if it was only one movie, your assumption is that awards voters were holding off on voting for her in part one because they knew that part two was coming. But I don't think that's why Uma Thurman didn't get nominated in 03. That movie just wasn't for them. It's weird. I mean, like you look at the Tarantino's movies now and like you look back across his filmography and it is bizarre to like look at the ones that were the academy's things and not the academy's thing like the hateful eight being an oscar winner when it is way more violent and way more obtuse and you know way less audience friendly but kill bill isn't it's strange but in the context of that time the academy was not ready to embrace tarantino right this was i was going to say is I think Inglorious Bastards sort of unlocked a door, which yeah. then, because it was a World War II movie, which is a genre that the Academy really loves, it sort of backdoored in a lot of the Tarantino violence and made that violence palatable, if only because it was attached to this World War II movie. And I think then going forward... And a lead star that they were much more... Even though Uma Thurman was an Oscar nominee at that point, but a lead star who's way more in their wheelhouse, too. Are you talking about Christoph Waltz? No, I'm talking about Brad Pitt. Oh, right. But I mean, but the nominee... All due respect to Uma Thurman, I think she's amazing, but like they're they're inherently going to be way way more on board with a Brad Pitt movie than they are an Uma Thurman movie. Yeah, even though I feel like Brad Pitt was sort of like weirdly backburnered when it when that movie was kind of being campaigned. But like regardless, in, I yeah, think in that, terms of a nomination, but like yeah. what is going to get them to put that movie right on <laughs> from a stack of movies? I think if Bill, I think if Kill Bill comes after Inglorious Bastards, it maybe has a better shot. Although even in that case, you look at his movies, I guess Hateful Eight is the exception. Hateful Eight is the one movie that is like violence and ugliness for violence and ugliness's sake. But like Django is violence and ugliness attached to a a sort of uh, antebellum uh, slave liberation narrative. And Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is violence and ugliness, at least at a certain point of the movie. Um, attached well, to... Well, and taking, you know, his own relationship to on-screen violence and ugliness in, like, you know, a filmmaking history sense, like... Right, again, and, and trucking... And that is a movie about violence. Well, yes, but while trafficking in another sort of well-appreciated Hollywood genre, which is Hollywood, Hollywood. itself. Right, yeah. <laughs> so, I don't know, I think, I, I, I think there are very limited number of universes where Uma Thurman ends up nominated, unfortunately, because... If you were talking about top five performances in Tarantino movies, Uma as the Bride is 
one of the most iconic and absolutely would have been a great nominee and i would happily talk about kill bill on this podcast because i think while you're right that like all of tarantino movies have been discussed plenty i weirdly do feel like the kill bill movies have been kind of shunted towards the back because of the post inglorious bastards run of his movies that like really tend to get talked to death that's maybe fair. I just feel like us doing a Kill Bill episode is like us doing a Heat episode. Like, sure. What, what is what you're saying? Like we could, but why? Sure. And I, like, you're making a good case for why. I think with Heat, at least, though, I think the thing where neither one of us is saying about Heat is just like, haven't straight people talked about that enough? And I don't know if I feel exactly the same way about Kill Bill, but whatever. Right. Well, and I also feel like, why do a Kill Bill Volume 2 episode, even though, like, there's plenty to argue about that that is the superior film, but, like... Oh, that's interesting. Way fewer, um... I would say... fewer Oscar expectations after the first one didn't get anything. And it's not Lord of the Rings, where it's like, well, we're just waiting for the final one to honor the whole thing. No, no, it wasn't like that for Kill Bill. I like Volume 2 significantly less, but that is the movie that has the supporting performances that I think are the strongest contenders yes. with Daryl yes. Hannah and also uh, uh, David Carradine. But anyway, um, should we move on? Yeah. Next question from Josh. I love this question. Uh, he dares us to each tell me your number one favorite or MVP performance in these SAG winning casts. Uh, he throws out the birdcage, Gosford Park, no country for old men, spotlight, Hidden Figures, and Crash. Crash. Crash! Um, I don't want to risk being boring on some of these, so I'm gonna... I'm gonna... Whatever. So, we'll start with The Birdcage. I could get cute with this. Obviously, you know I love Diane Weist. Obviously, you know I love Diane Weist saying somebody has to love me best, which is... um. A movie line I tend to think of a lot temperamentally. I'm I'm right there with you, Diane. Um, but it's Nathan Lane. Like that movie doesn't work without Nathan Lane giving the performance that he does. We talked about this when we did um, uh, our screen drafts uh, episode mm-hmm. on on drag movies. I sort of went on and on and on as I tend to do um, about how much I love Nathan Lane in that movie. So that's my pick for that one. What is your birdcage? Uh, my pick for the birdcage, like, I, I'm not saying this to be combative. I feel like the birdcage has been, like, a comfort watch for people in uh, the pandemic and, like, especially during lockdown. Yeah. So I feel like I've had a lot of conversations about the birdcage. I honestly think it's Robin Williams. And it's not to, you know, poo-poo anything that Nathan Lane is doing because he's incredible. I just think... On some level, Robin Williams has the harder job in that movie. Not just in terms of that movie and how it functions and what its characters are tasked to do and the actors playing them, but also in terms of his career and what was expected of him. Sure. Like, wasn't he actually... um, Didn't they approach him to play the Nathan Lane character first? And he said, no, I want to do this one. And it's oh, a, interesting. It's a bigger challenge for Robin Williams. I could be wrong about that story um, or misremembering, but I do think for that performer at that point in their career, he's taking the bigger risk. And when I rewatch it now, he's the one that gets the biggest laughs out of me. Interesting. I, I also want to say... do something petulant with this question. Why? What? 
Okay, my thing about the SAG Ensemble nominations. We uh-huh. People have talked about this before. Their rules suck ass in that you have to have, and I'm sure there's exceptions to this because... There's you know, exceptions every can, year to this, yes, yes. You have to have a solo screen credit to be in the ensemble. So I'm also going to pull out somebody like a, an MVP that didn't actually get this award. Oh, there's not okay. a lot for the birdcage. Uh, and there's one where there's, I don't think anyone, I'll mention that when I get there, but um, I want to call out Calista Flockhart. She is funny in this movie. Oh, I love Calista Flockhart in that movie. There's very few Everybody people. in this movie is great. Everybody likes to sort uh, of shit on the Dan Futterman character because he's like the real villain of the birdcage is the Dan Futterman character. And like, you're not wrong, but also like, that's kind of a basic take. And I also think he's actually really good in that. That is uh He won a SAG award for it, but Calista yeah. Flockhart did not. Yeah. That's a, well, yeah, and that's like dumb. That's like stupid. Particularly in the light of the fact that like by the next year she was on the cover of Time magazine. <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> uh who is your pick for Gosford Park? Um, well, Gosford Park is the one where it's like everybody is Yeah, that's sort of my thing. That really like, is the MVP of Gosford Park is the whole cast together. It really... Oh, no, I'm saying everybody oh. pretty much got included in oh, that tag lineup, I see, I in see, that I ensemble see. lineup. Nobody really got screwed over. And, gotcha. like, if I'd seen Gosford Park more recently, there's probably somebody who has a single throwaway line that's brilliant that's not in there. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, I don't have someone who wasn't actually nominated by SAG in the ensemble who's great in the movie. My number one pick is basic, but it's Maggie Smith. And, like, I know people kind of now think less of that performance and nomination because of the Downton Abbey of it all. I think it's very different. I think there is a meanness that runs through that movie that I like more about that movie than I I don't give a shit about Downton Abbey. Um, And I think she's kind of a core of that, where it's like all of these things that, like, you know, made us really interested in Maggie Smith again because of this performance. Yeah. Like, we forget how, like, mean she is in that movie. And it's not just this, like, withering, you know, countess or whatever that, like, has become her typecast. Like, there's an actual meanness there. Yeah. You're not wrong. I I sort of have the other side of the coin at the risk of also being basic and mine is Helen Mirren. I think Helen Mirren sort of unlocks the end of that movie in a way that she's sort of the the kind of crouching tiger who awaits at the end of that movie and uh, in a really kind of wonderful way. And yeah, I think she's fantastic. No Country for Old Men. So No Country for Old Men is the one where I like most like throughout the prompt because like it seems dumb to not say Javier Bardem. Like he's such a towering performance and it's such a, it's so central to the movie, to the sort of the central menace of the movie that like without making that performance as iconic as it is, it doesn't work. It wins the Oscar for a reason. Like uh, nobody needs me being contrarian about Javier Bardem and I have no interest in doing it. That being said, Rather than just sort of give the predictable answer, I'm going to say Tommy Lee Jones because... I said Tommy Lee Jones, too. I also, as much as that movie doesn't work without Javier Bardem playing the titanic evil at the center of it, it also doesn't work without Tommy Lee Jones playing the absolutely dumbfounded inability to grasp this purposeless evil that bardem represents that like that's also just as important to what the coens are trying to do with that movie Mm -hmm. and he's yeah and tommy lee jones i think people realized 
way too late how great he is in that movie. Was he nominated by Bath? Somebody, I think, nominated him. Was it not SAG? Didn't SAG nominate him in supporting? I feel like... I think he's the lead of the movie, though. Well, in as much as... I I don't know. I feel like Brolin's the lead of that movie, but... Yeah, I mean, I think it's probably both of them, but... Sure. Also, um, obviously, as a person who loves actresses, shout out to Kelly McDonald for also, in her big scene at the end, really uh, nailing the theme of the movie, too. And, of course... Yeah, she's wonderful in the movie. Coin Don't Have No Say is uh, is one of my favorite lines that she delivers. And my MVP, who was not included in the SAG lineup, is obviously Beth Grant. Ah, oh, just like she had previsioned it. I love her in that movie. <laughs> um, one of our finest. Spotlight. Remember, I was able to write about for Vulture Grant, last year. They did their finest. their uh, char- best character actors ranking, and I did the blurb on Beth Grant. And she was oh. incredibly sweet and gracious when uh, she tweeted it out. And she was just just very just nice and and again just like gracious and and humbled by it and it made me feel like you know oh god like why you know you shouldn't be thanking me beth grant my god i should be thanking you for you know for the lady on the bus in speed if nothing else my god or for you know <laughs> too long food for all of it yeah exactly she's Love one of her. the best all right uh, next movie is spotlight yeah, what was all right? Well, I'll do mine because I guess I'm pulling from the main cast and you're pulling from the uh, from the. Snubbed. I'm doing both. I'm doing both. Um, well, I have a little bit of both too. Mine from the main cast is Stanley Tucci. I think he uh, he rules, and he is also he sort of for as much as this movie is and rightfully so about the sort of journalistic shoe leather of this team. And I think they work together really well. Um, I don't really have any weak points. I know a lot of people sort of quibble with Ruffalo cause he got the nomination, but I do. I think Ruffalo is fine. My, I think Tucci though is giving you the sort of the zing that uh, you sort of, you know, livens up his, his portions of the movie. But I also would be remiss if I did not shout out Michael Cyril Creighton for his very small but very uh, crucial role as Incredible. one of the victims. He was he is, almost my uh, non-SAG nominated MVP. He's uh, one of those actors who, like, you've seen on television before, you've seen in movies before. If you've watched High Maintenance, he has a recurring role on that. He was in the Incredible. The, he was on um, Only Murders in the Building. If you watched that this year, he was the <laughs> the neighbor with the cat. He's uh, really uh, wonderful and fantastic. One of the greatest. Yes. What is your pick? Uh, uh, my pick is Michael Keaton. Um, of yeah. The actual SAG nominated cast. I was kind of baffled that whole season how, and it was kind of mixed up and people didn't know if he was supporting or lead. It's so stupid. Just nominate him somewhere. Um, Here's my thing about he's that. He's incredible We've... in that movie. I think especially in the year after Birdman where he doesn't win. Like I was so scratching my head why people didn't get it and it's very understated but like i think the emotional realizations that his character goes through and the like kind of simmering outrage is way more effective and impressive in his performance than it is in ruffalo's um and like ruffalo i think is going for like the easy stuff and like Michael Keaton is not it's like it it feels like an actual reckoning and not like a movie reckoning the thing um, about Keaton too and we've talked about this a ton of times when we talk about the 2015 Oscars is that is a famously 
weak and shoddy best actor lineup, Michael Keaton is, for as much as that movie is a an ensemble movie, Michael Keaton's the lead of that movie. He's okay. your entry point into that movie. He's the head of the team. He's the most prominent character. He's your lead. He was just... The third act of the movie is all about both his relationship to the story and his, like, personal, like, journey that he goes through in like reporting this story to and, and like he, his own failings. And he was the runner up for best actor the year before. It's insane that they did not campaign him as a lead. He absolutely I think would have gotten nominated if they would have campaigned him as a lead. I I don't understand the 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 and, and it was supporting he's competing with people from his own movie. He's competing with people from his own movie and it was also like this attempted chicanery of like campaigning the biggest role in your movie as supporting as if that's going to like give you a leg up. And that was of course the year what lower like category fraud was on everybody's mind because of what Rooney Mara and Alicia Vikander were doing in supporting actress. And so uh, I think the underrated one there is that uh, spotlight tried it and, and kind of got Michael Keaton screwed out of a nomination. Mm-hmm. That's like I, you know how I hate the whole category fraud conversation and how annoying I think some people are, are about it sometimes. Where it's just like y- there's other things to be outraged about people, um, but like the thing that I does annoy me that like Spotlight did, and it's like just because you have an ensemble doesn't make everybody supporting in a movie. It's like, right. it's annoying to me that mass is trying, mass isn't going to get anything, but like, it's annoying to me that mass is like, well, all of these people are supporting. It's like, no, the answer to that is then they're all a lead. Maybe that's not true for spotlight, but it is for mass. Anyway, um, my non SAG nominated MVP, I did almost pick Michael Cyril, Cyril Creighton, but, uh, I feel like nobody recognized how great Jamie Sheridan is in that movie in sure. a very difficult role. And he gets like the best scene in the movie opposite Michael Keaton um, or one of the best scenes in the movie opposite Michael Keaton. Um, and it's kind of weird to me that he wasn't included in that SAG ensemble lineup because like it's a large role of all the people who weren't included. That's fair. That's fair. Hidden figures. Yeah, hidden figures. So mine is kind of simple. Like, it, it's kind of a coin flip for me between Octavia Spencer and Taraji. And I'll give it to Octavia. I think she's uh, really fantastic. Richly deserved that uh, supporting actress nomination that she got. I think of the three leads, Janelle Monet being in Moonlight that same year and being so great in Moonlight made it very easy for me to just be like, well, no, I liked Janelle Monet better in, in Moonlight that year. Um but yeah, it's Octavia for me. I think she rules. It's Janelle Monáe for me. Like, there's something <laughs> about these kind of like broadly emotional movies, like a performance that like her big scene could be this overplayed, overwrought thing, but instead she just kind of cuts through all of that and is able to express something very plainly in a way that I think is incredibly effective in like a broadly emotional movie rather than, you know, doing the type of like weepy self-referential reverential, um, like easy acting choice um, that would just like not stand out as much. Yeah. And then my uh, non nominated uh, MVP is honestly all the kids (laughs) in the movie. Like, yeah, that's sweet. Like, they're just as important in the movie, too. Sure. They have good scenes with Taraji. 
All right. Uh, and ending this co- uh, this question with Crash. Crash. The thing about Crash is, funny enough, I haven't been moved to rewatch Crash in the years since it uh, since I originally saw it. It's been over fifteen years since I've seen it, so it's tough for me to remember, um, and certainly tough to reevaluate uh, what I thought of it. I remember at the time thinking. Oh, I like Michael Pena's performance in a storyline that really makes me angry. Um, I really feel like the the cheapness of putting that child in danger in that scene uh, really kind of boiled boiled my boiled my buttons. That's not a phrase. I don't know what it, where I was going with that. What happens when you boil a button? I I get mad about a crash. I guess. Yeah. Um, I also put in parentheses Sandra Bullock question mark question mark Tandiway Newton question mark question mark like I I at least I remember Sandy's uh, line reading of I'm so angry and I don't know why which is another line I think of a lot because of uh, temperamental reasons um and I think I kind of graphed a lot of sympathy towards Tandiway Newton's performance because of how she's talked so uh clearly about making that movie and and her difficulties in filming those scenes mm-hmm. and i want to sort of give her a little bit of a of a you know nod towards that but i think my answer is michael pena i mean um, this is a movie where like regardless of your thoughts on the movie like kind of creates a whole spectrum of who is good and who is bad yeah on like every performance i think i would probably fall on Don Cheadle being the best, which okay. is like not the character you think about at all. But like again, it's that type of thing where it's like if you can just play an even level, you're probably going to cut through some of the bullshit. Um, and then my non-nominated MVP, who else but Loretta Divine? I mean, oh, see, I love Loretta Divine. I hate what she has to do in Crash, and I don't think she does it particularly well. Is my is my remembrance of her in Crash at least? Again, it's been a while. Well, I'm always going to um, pay love and homage to Loretta Devine. I do love her though. I do love her as an actress. Uh, next question, probably my favorite question that we got um, from Tyler. At 41 years, Henry Fonda has the record for longest gap between acting Oscar nominations. Who do you think has the best chance to tie or break? his record uh tyler gave us some options of like tara stamp lily tomlin candace bergen uh and then some people who could do it soon like alfrey woodard will be eligible in a few years as with right. john lithgow and jane fonda two weeks ago i would have maybe had a different answer but i think the the answer right now is rita moreno oh well yeah it would be 60 years yeah um Yes. And we will see, but like, I think there is a strong enough possibility. Yeah. Certainly among everybody on this list, she's got the best option to do it right now. So, yeah. Yes. Right now. Shamefully, it's not Candace Bergen from last year for I Let know. Them All Talk. But it does show that she is still giving great work and great acting as of right now. That's why I was sort of looking at this list and I'm like, well, who is sort of working? at top of their game. We've seen Alfre Woodard give a performance very recently that was uh, award-worthy, so I think Alfre's got to be in the conversation. Yeah, I think, I think she's uh, she's definitely a possibility. 
people like Terrence Stamp and Lily Tomlin and Mary Steenburgen are all working a lot. So mm-hmm. there's always that possibility. Um, I added- you want to talk about a real bummer, though, if like all that Mary Steenburgen is tasked to do in Nightmare Alley is the type of role she's getting. We we are in a bad place like give but she's her more still, to do. she works a lot though so that's what she i mean does. it's just like i think you're gonna have a better chance i added goldie hawn to the list i know she's reteaming with um diane keaton and bette midler for a movie coming up that is probably not an awards movie but um if we can get her acting again her she was last nominated in uh, 1980 the same year that mary steen version won diane keaton no goldie hawn oh sorry 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 um and i all i also made a note there is on Barbara Streisand's uh, Streisand, sorry, uh, uh, licorice pizza, um, on her IMDb of an untitled Barbara Streisand project that she is uh, at least has been mentioned enough to have made it onto IMDb. Um, that is supposedly about the tumultuous love affair between Margaret Bork White and Erskine Caldwell, who are. Uh, photographers, I believe, uh, of note. Um, I don't know if this movie will ever get made, but I will just say that I will always put Barbara on a list of possibles when she directs her next movie, just because I well, feel like she Well, it would have to be an acting it. nomination, though. Oh, right, it would have to be an acting nomination. Well, then, forget that. I also, though, think if Barbara ever wanted to take a showy supporting role in a big movie which she might not want to i think she's she has the kind of star power that would attract voters yeah so there's always that possibility was she globe nominated for meet the fockers i don't think so here let me find out when her last golden globe nomination was was it not the guilt trip was she nominated for the guilt trip i don't think she was she i think she was nominated in lead for the guilt trip Please hold. Now I have to scroll all the way down for the Golden Globes because IMDb has punished the uh, Hollywood Foreign Press by demoting them to uh, also ran status. No, uh, she won the DeMille Award in 2000. Her last competitive nomination for that was as actress in a musical or a comedy for The Mirror Has Two Faces. Interesting. Yes. So what, what was she nominated for The Guilt Trip, if for anything... Uh, a Razzie nomination. Fuck off. Yeah, that oh was her God. only nomination for the guilt trip is for the Razzie. Boo. Fuck off. All right. Anyway. Barbara Streisand could be literally horrible in something and the Razzies would nominate her and I'd still tell them to fuck off. Exactly. Exactly. Show some respect. Yeah. From Daniel, with Brendan Fraser having a comeback recently, what other 1990s actor would you like to see make a prominent comeback? So this is a difficult question because, um, and not to, you know, bring sexism into this question, but it's unavoidable. Um, actors have to, actors have less of a need to have a comeback than actresses do because actors have more of an ability to keep working through, uh, getting older. I think actresses tend to run into this thing where the roles sort of dry up and, um, we like to talk about actresses more. So I wanted to keep it towards actors because I think it's a, it's a more difficult question. All of mine kind of have a question mark after them. I think some of the ones that I might have said a few years ago have actually now had a comeback. Michael Keaton being one of them. Andy Garcia being one of them. 
Um, I had Chris O'Donnell question mark. I had uh, <laughs> Carrie. Isn't he on some horrible like CBS cop show? Right, but I mean, as a movie, he's star, working. You know what I mean? He's working, but like, uh, give him a movie, maybe. See, I took. 1990s actor to mean male or female. I didn't necessarily take that use of actor to be gendered. I see. Well, then fuck. Because me. I have a clear answer. Okay, well, I'm going to finish my list and then I will... Okay, uh, give, me the, will... give me the list. Give me the list. Um. Well, whatever. It's Carrie Elwes, maybe. Um. Bill Pullman's still working, but like, you know, put him in a movie. My, my main answer is Joe Montaigne because I feel like I haven't seen Joe Montaigne in anything. And it's worth it to remember that he actually like had lead roles in movies in the 1990s, which is yeah. uh, something. Anyway, what's yours? Well, I obviously thought of an actress as I, you know, that is how that is my hardwiring. Um, and this is a performer who, to my understanding, doesn't necessarily want to go there and has had like attempts. I believe in like TV and theater, um, but like isn't as interested in being like a star. Um, it's Alicia Silverstone. Yeah. Because that killing of a sacred deer performance, if there was like one more scene, I think people would have talked about it a little bit more. And I think she, that like her scene in that movie showed that she's still an incredibly smart, incredibly funny could be very interesting in, like, auteur movies or, like, a movie with a very clear point of view. I, like, and, like, especially, like, Clueless just had a big anniversary and, like, people are talking about Clueless and her performance in that and, like, how it didn't really get the respect it deserved at at the time because of what that movie was. Um, I would love to see a Silverstone comeback. Yeah, that'd be nice. Uh, from a friend of the podcast, Thomas Farnan Williams. Hi, Thomas. We love you. Um, with Bergman Island in theaters now and all the love for it on the pod, I wondered if you could do your own version of the trip Chris and Tony took, where would it be and for which director? I'm going to give this to you because I couldn't come up with a good enough answer. I mean, some of them I feel like would be basic. I would love to do like Martin Scorsese's New York or like... What was the oh? I would love like Pedro Almodovar to tell me all of the places that inspired him in Spain. Oh, that's lovely. That's a good answer. Yeah, my best that I could come up with is just like I'd like to hang out with Greta Gerwig in Sacramento. That's about it. <laughs> oh, 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 do you remember the first time you drove in San Sacramento? <laughs> is that the line? Never I think it is. It's close to it. Anyway, Rent Bergman Island, uh, now uh, streamable and one of the best films of 2021. Indeed. From Alex, with the news that production on Sunset Bo- the Sunset Boulevard remake has been indefinitely stalled, what would have been a big Oscar push for Glenn Close now seems to be in jeopardy? Other than Norma Desmond, what would your dream type of role be for Glenn to finally win with, and is, this, is that the same thing you as what you would think she would realistically win with. I think it's a great thing that this movie was stalled because like Sunset Boulevard is, I, I want like that type of star treatment for Glenn Close to happen, but Sunset Boulevard is a bad musical and I understand that she feels an attachment to it, but like, I feel like that would have been setting people up to have their heart broken again because it's just not a good musical, and I don't know if she would win for that. And I feel like we've said this before, like, the 
fastest avenue for Glenn Close to win an Oscar is to be in a Best Picture frontrunner. Well, I don't know if I necessarily agree with that. I think I might have agreed with that a year ago. I think the nomination for uh, Hillbilly Elegy kind of made me think all bets are off and that she could get buzz for anything and could get nominated for anything. And so long as it's not as bad and as poorly received as Hillbilly Elegy was, she could win for it. Like if Hillbilly Elegy is 20% better of a movie, I think she wins for that. And that's probably true. And so I think so long as we are still in this sort of moment with her, I don't think it's going to take have being in a best picture nominee. I think you're not wrong about Sunset Boulevard in that that's such a spotlight of a role and she would have to be in lead. And I think it's probably going to be a supporting role in a movie that gets enough attention on her. It's obviously not going to be this thing that she did with Mila Kunis this year, although they're kind, there's a little bit of a push for it, which is like well, weird. Well, this is also my thing that I'm like, it couldn't just be anything, like right. you're saying, because there's also Swan Song, which is yeah. on Apple, which she's good in and Mahershala Ali is very good in, but like nobody's seen or talked about this movie. Right. I think it's I just... I, don't, I think it's a non-entity. Something big enough to get a push from a studio. I feel like the role I would want to see her in, A, to possibly have, you know, a second shot at a certain, you know, legend of uh, musical theater. If the Follies movie is actually made, Glenn Close could star in either of those female lead roles. Oh, interesting. And if she gets to play Sally and do Losing My Mind... That's that's a, an express way to her Oscar. Granted, she sang that song at the Barbara Cook Lincoln was, Center Honors. You keep I met, understand you keep... that people think it didn't go well for her. I don't think it's wait. Her fault. Who thinks that? There, I've seen some people being like, "She's not in tempo with the music." Not oh, her fault. Fuck not her fault. Off. It's the orchestra. She's so good on that performance. Oh, I'm mad. I agree. I'm mad. Granted. Anybody who is doing a Barbara Cook's version of that song is, I'm sorry, the version of the song. Anybody who would have had to perform that song for Barbara Cook in front of Barbara Cook is at a disadvantage. It's not her fault. I don't know. I'm no authority on Follies, even though I've seen it on stage. I saw it when Bernadette Peters played that role. And I remember there's a point where she says... I'm Sally Duran, I'm 40 years old, and I burst out laughing. Um, and I was not I supposed to. I mean, it's to. displaced in time. Sure, okay. So I so I guess... And Melda Staunton just played that. I think it's different on stage than in a movie. I think in a movie, uh, having a, bit, a disparity between a character's age and an actress's age uh, shows up more. But I'm willing to be, you know, proved wrong. I understand. I think if that movie actually happens... It would be more interesting to have performers the age of Glenn Close. A Follies movie would make $2 at the box office is the other thing. I don't know if it would matter. Oh, fuck off. No, I'm I'm not relishing that, Chris. I am feeling fairly depressed about that fact. But, like, nobody, like, that movie would make no money. Like, 
given the fact that West Side Story is underperforming. Like, we'll see how it does at the end of the day. I don't know if there's movies that during the pandemic that have actually legged out, but we'll I'm see. not wrong. I don't think that deserved a fuck you. Like, I think I'm like <laughs> kind of on tr- on target with that. And you know, I understand. I understand. Uh, from Emily, uh, since we're talking about musicals, uh, what do you think is the actual best song to win best original song? I have a few answers for these. I liked this question. I liked sort of going through. I do love this question. What people don't realize is that there's actually a lot of Christmas standards that won best original song and were nominated. I avoided those because that feels unfair. I didn't. I think White Christmas is one of the best songs ever. Like, I think... (laughs) I it, it, we are in Christmas season. There's no way I was gonna, was not going to put White Christmas on my list. Um, I, I did. I I pulled a five, and I think I could pull a best from that five. What are your five? Over the rainbow. Uh huh. When you wish upon a star. Uh huh. From thank God it's Friday. Last dance. Uh huh. Beauty and the Beast. Uh huh. And I'm sorry. I am what I am. I am. I will always be this person. My heart will go on. My heart will go on. I definitely strongly considered um, Beauty and the Beast. I considered. Uh, I had a top six. I guess if we can disqualify Christmas, if we are going to be uh, Scrooge's about it, then fine. My top five. I also have Last Dance. Um, the way we were is on my list. I think that's a beautiful song, and obviously, I wanted to have a Marvin Hamlish on mine. I thought about it. Marvin Hamlish. Sorry. I am a cheese ball, so I fucking love flash dance what a feeling i think it's a bop i think it's so good um i'm so glad it's an oscar winner i also am a cheese ball and love carly simon's let the river run which i almost did that I almost will there. keep me watching through the end credits of working girl every time i see that on tv and if i'm gonna get a little timely about it and i deeply wish he had been there to accept this award uh stephen sondheim's oscar for sooner or later i always get my man as performed by madonna in dick tracy we don't have is, a stephen sondheim oscar speech is a top notch best song winner it's so 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 good so my winner again I'm i'm just gonna be that person it's over the rainbow i realize it's Probably a basic choice, but I think it's the right choice. I mean, sometimes the basics. Are what do I think is the best win? Like, I'm so happy. I always pull this one out that I love that this song won this category. Yes, it's Last Dance. Yeah, That's I'm rad. glad. I'm glad that that Adonis Summer song won best song. Did she win? Was she a songwriter on that? Ooh. I don't know. It'd be nice to think that Donna Summer has an Oscar or had an Oscar when she was alive. Um, but anyway, regardless, yes, I love that. I love that win. Not a whole. We didn't pull out any recent wins. If there, if I was going to pull, I like out, some recent winners, but yeah, not not when we stack it up against the glory days of that category. Right, like of recent winners, I would probably say "Remember Me" from Coco is the best one. There's I'd probably also say a lot of like Skyfall, but yeah. There's a lot of like iconic wins that I'm like, actually, I would have voted for the other one that it <laughs> like Shallow? was nominated for. Yeah. Well, Shallow was the only one nominated from. Oh, Star's but that was the other one that was nominated for. I thought you just meant another song. Well, there, there's plenty of that, which like, yes, I do actually think always remember this way is the yeah. uh, Stars Born song that should have won. Um, no, but like fame. 
I don't think Fame should have won, but Out Here on My Own, if right. that was the winner, could maybe be on my list. Yeah, I think that's a good call. Hey, listeners, guess what? We went super long on our mailbag episode, and we're going to give you a special treat. We're going to split it across two episodes. So that is just the first half of the mailbag. Please come back next week when we start off January with the back half of the mailbag. Uh, Lots of fun more questions coming. Uh, But for now, at least, that is the first part of our episode. This is the Dune Part 1. We (laughs) are going into... The uh, they don't end the movie on Arrakis, right? Yeah, don't they? either way. They're on Arrakis, yes. Joe just killed someone to prove that he's the Messiah, right? The sandworm showed up. Um, it wanted to hang out. It had an opinion on who should be a front runner for best actress this year. It's a whole thing. Um, weirdly, the sandworm was rooting for Becky Ferguson. I feel like. Yeah. You know, that's that's supporting your friend. You always have to you always have to throw a vote to a friend, right? The sandworm started singing for Galicious and we interpreted that as being support for Becky Ferguson in Dune and honestly, uh, probably rightly so. Uh, but for now, that's our episode, or at least the first half of the uh, mailbag episode. Come back next week. We'll finish it out before getting back into more movies and more autopsies. If you want more of This Had Oscar Buzz, you can check out the Tumblr at thishadoscarbuzz.tumblr.com. You should also follow us on Twitter at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz. Uh, Joe, where can the listeners find more of you? Yeah, I'll be on Twitter at Joe Reed. I'll be on Letterboxd as uh, also Joe Reed. Reed in both cases spelled R-E-I-D. And uh, you can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at Chris V. File. That's F-E-I-L. We'd like to thank Kyle Cummings and his fantastic artwork. Uh, Dave Gonzalez and Gavin Mevius for their technical guidance. Please remember to rate, like, and review us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever else you get those podcasts. Five-star review in particular really helps us out with Apple Podcast visibility. So write us a review and tell us who else you think the Dune Sandworm is voting for and Best Supporting Actress <laughs> besides Becky Ferguson. But that's all for this week, and we hope you'll be back next week for more buzz. And more Bye. Music.